Hey there, my name is Ash, and here you're here with Beneath the Ashes, a podcast that focus on, focuses on the many unanswered questions we may have when we conclude a game with a compelling universe. Today, I'm here with Kazuma Hashimoto, otherwise known as Justice Kazi, to talk to you about what we believe Sekiro is based on. Welcome, Kazuma. If there is anyone I would love to do my first podcast with, it would be you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Kazam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, for those that might not know you here? Because I've been fortunate to um, fortunate to have found you on social media ten years ago, and I finally got a chance to connect with you. After all these years, I admire you for your tenacity, your courage to voice opinions, and your avid um, love for games. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> You're flattering me so much. Um, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm like really embarrassed now. Ah. <laughs> Take a moment. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, everything I said is true. I, there's a reason why I've been following you for 10 years. It was really nice to be able to find you again on Twitter, especially when I was playing the Yakuza series. Like coming across you again was just like, wow, I can't believe I've found someone that I've been following for so long again through another platform. Was it the, the me holding all the games? Uh, I think it actually was your thoughts about Yakuza and not just the ah. picture of you holding all the games, though that was really impressive as well. <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, so for anyone that doesn't know me, my name is Hashimoto. I am a games journalist and translator. Um, I mostly cover the Yakuza series. Uh, I also do streaming on my channel um, where I get into discussions a lot about Japanese politics, history, uh, social norms, and societal customs as well. Um, other than that, I'm a pretty chill guy. I should also mention that I am half Japanese. I speak Japanese that's I guess that's relevant to the discussion I figure so yeah um it's basically it about me uh why don't you introduce yourself for any of my followers that are watching that don't know who you are <laughs> um well like I said my name is Ash uh I just have a very avid love for games I'm pretty much uh, pretty sure that you can relate to that and one day I just kind of got up and wanted to be able to broadcast all the games I never had time to play by myself I had such a huge backlog I've been focusing so much on my education over the years and was very career oriented and I found myself one day just wanting to try and explore some of the things I've always loved and never found time for anymore and so I just started streaming and here I am and I got to meet many cool people along the way and uh I don't regret a single minute. I've been doing this for two years now, and I love every single second of it. <laughs> yeah, Ash is a very kind and very like generous person, so I thank you so much for having me here. It's been great connecting with you and getting to talk to you, and you're just honestly just a very like a very generous soul. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're talking about you, I'm me flattering you, and then you say all these words, and now I just can't like top that because I'm just gonna feel awkward this entire time thinking like. <laughs> I, I, okay. <laughs> like, I think it's just sometimes some people just kind of connect. And I think one of the things I really appreciate about you is just being able to listen to you talk about things that you are very avid about and feeling just really drawn to the conversation. Like, it, it's so enticing. It's so educational. Um, it's just a lot of fun. And so that's why I really wanted to have you here today, because... I think Sekiro is a very interesting game. And like you said, you are half Japanese. You do have a bit of knowledge um, about, let's say, the culture, um, let's say, religion, about just being a Japanese person. And so, like, your perspective on this is really interesting. And I would love to hear um, 
anything you have to offer us, honestly. Because <laughs> that's you so much. That's how I feel when I'm hanging out in your streams or I'm listening to your podcast. It's like you're very knowledge- knowledgeable. You do your research. You give us a lot of good insight that we probably wouldn't have thought of ourselves. And I think that's what this podcast is about. Because when we play a game, we don't really take the time to stop and think about the deeper messages or just the themes involved in the making of it. And a lot of us are just not knowledgeable about these things. Like especially with Secure, a lot of people just kind of went in. They expected to be a game they expected the hard game and they complained about that on the internet especially when they got to the final fights like Ishin and whatnot um <laughs> but not much more than that I think people had to scrounge for information to write for other people to kind of bring it to light themselves uh, and so that's kind of what I want to do today just talk about those deeper themes yes also your followers are so generous I'm watching the chat go and I'm like whoa all these bits <laughs> <laughs> They they really want to unlock the the pride emotes and I think it's a really great month for them. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Rob raising the flag. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So um, you played Secure, right? Uh yeah, I did. I did. I only got one of the endings, and I kind of looked up the rest um, because that was a game like I played once just because it was like ah uh, yeah like this game gets me very like frustrated and i don't need to revisit that <laughs> but you played so, bloodborne oh yeah well the thing with bloodborne is that okay i'm not good at souls games i'll admit that i'm bad at video games um my my boyfriend is very good at these games so he was the one that got me interested in dark souls i had played demon souls and i was like nah, i was so so at it um but he's he usually plays these games before i do um and one day bloodborne just kind of clicked with me and then I just ran through the whole game and killed every boss. And I was just like, awesome. Like, I did this in, like, five hours. Something inside of me just changed, I guess. Um, but uh, with Sekiro, because I had more experience with Bloodborne, I felt like that game was easier to approach for me. Um, just in the terms of the combat. So I actually beat that game before Jake did, which is weird. That never happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, Yeah. I got the um I I don't know what what it's called but it's the one where uh you you kill you you commit a ritual seppuku where you kill yourself at the end of the game. I got that one. Um okay, so there is a good ending, an alternate good ending, a bad ending, and the true ending. Yeah. And the one that you kill yourself, I believe was the um one of the bad endings actually. Yeah, because I'm like not you... mistaken, because you actually give um, what you do is you go to Kuro and you give him the dragon tears and mm-hmm. you give him, I think it was the ever blossom branch, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. yeah, that's the one where you kill yourself because you want to end the dragon heritage, um, yeah. the, Im- the immortal uh, severance or oath, if I remember the term correctly. Yeah, 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 that one. Yeah. Um, I, I got a completely different ending. I wanted to basically follow uh, Master Kuro's every woman wish. And so I was very loyal and dedicated to him. And if he wanted to end uh, the immortal severance in the way that he knew how, I was very dedicated to his cause. So you got <laughs> like, the true to the ending letter. Then, yeah? Um, I don't know if we would say... No, it's not the true ending. It's possibly like the most common ending for people. Um, I would say it's the... 
I went. I don't know if I, it's actually called the good ending or the bad ending because I would think it's a good ending since you technically ended the um, dragon rot. You destroyed the dragon heritage, um, but it's not the true ending. The true ending actually is something else altogether because with that, yeah, yeah. it's the reincarnation ending. Yes, um, and that one's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but how did you feel about the game, like in general? Not just to, not just like how did it play, but your impressions of it when you played it. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. Um, I felt like so with like you get like one of three things with the way Japan likes to sort of portray Sengoku era media. You get Sekiro, which is similar to the era in like tone and aesthetic, but is still somewhat fantastical. And you get something like Neo, which still adheres to the actual history, but then, like, it's Neo. You know, that's all you really gotta say about it. Then you have things like Sengoku Basara, which are, like, it's historically accurate, but Date Masamune is riding a horse with exhaust pipes and uses six katanas at the same time. (laughs) So, like, you, you have, like these three extremes this usually goes off into in terms of like video games or anime i think um, it's I feel just, like yeah. oh go ahead yeah it's kind of like a romanticization of it and just yeah making it very cool for viewers to experience exactly wanting to get kids interested in history mm-hmm. um or have people interested in general or just the fact that a lot of the sengoku era figures are very bankable which is why i was really interested in the fact that uh, Sekiro actually has no actual mention of any historical figures other than it being in the Sengoku era. Uh, because, for example, Sengoku Basara, like that is, they use those characters for like promotions for cultural festivals in Japan. Like, it's uh, Kojiro Day. Like, today is the day we celebrate the anniversary of Date Masamune's retainer in the Sengoku era. And so they have this anime character like on a bus. Or come to Oshu, we have like a giant statue of Date Masamune from Basara on his horse with exhaust pipes, like that kind of thing, you know? Um, it's, it's really like that. Um, so the fact that Miyazaki takes this like era and wants to tell his own story about these like Shinto and Buddhist concepts um, without using like uh, direct correlations to certain figures in history, I think is very interesting. I liked it. I think it's. I think it's a very interesting take on this. I think. I think you brought up a lot of like um, prevalent concepts here that people probably are not very familiar with uh, when it comes to secure and just like Japan in general. Like you mentioned, the Sengoku era, which I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't know um, historically. Like you mentioned, also Buddhism, which people probably are more familiar with, and uh, Shinto as well. And I think these are the most prevalent concepts throughout Sekiro. So I want to just give people a little bit of a preface about what those are, and then feel free to correct me if I make any mistakes. Um, But Shinto is the traditional religion of Japan. And it's not religion so much as um, some of the religions are recognized around around the world, but it focuses on ritual practices that are carried out diligently. So it's a collection of beliefs, mythology, um, and today we see it as the religion of public shrines and a devotion to worship of kami or gods uh, and spirits and essences. Is that correct? Uh, Or would you feel like I'm missing something about that? No, that's very correct. Yes, it does involve ritual practices. It is, again, the belief that there are gods in everything, and you worship these kami. 
Um, and that's basically Shintoism. And there are very, very different types of Shintoism that kind of splinter off uh, when Buddhism was introduced to Japan. Um, and then you kind of see this again in the Sengoku era uh, due to, again, like the, Jap- the Japanese expansion into uh, Korea and China, for example, during the time uh, when Hideyoshi was going um, further westward. Like you have a lot of this that is involved in again, like Japan, like J- Japanese colonialism and um, basically this idea of Pan-Asianism and the unification of Asia. So uh, you have a lot of these mixed cultural influences because of that. Um, but I'm also surprised that they also didn't mention Christianity because this is actually when Christianity was introduced to Japan, but we'll save that for like a different discussion. Did you feel like there was, um, and this is what I was going to talk about next, Buddhism, that there kind of was like a tug between Shinto and Buddhism um, at that period of time? Did you feel like people, uh, did you feel like, let's say, Shinto and Buddhism merged, or were there people like, let's say, clashing with these two different concepts at any given period of time, or did they just embrace both uh, entirely? Um. I don't know much about that personally. I'll admit that um, the way it is now, like I'll, I'll be honest, uh, Japanese people are not very religious. We just kind of follow these like rituals because that's just the way it is. That's like what we do. We're not a super like religious people. Um, so I'd actually have to do more research on that. But um, the meld of these two is very appropriate for the time period, like uh, and how it's represented in like Sekiro. I feel. Yeah, so um, Buddhism is also uh, a variety of traditions, beliefs, spiritual practices that are based on the original teachings of Buddha um, himself and a lot of interpretations over time. So Shinto and Buddhism are going to play a huge part or have played a huge part in Sekiro. And there's many, uh, many ways that we'll basically be able to pull out later on um, in the talks of how they influence the storytelling and the characters that you see. But I think, like you said, the most important part is probably Sengoku era and like the message that, let's say, Miyazaki tries to like communicate about this timeline. And like you said, there's many different medias out there that portray the Sengoku era. And this one was just, you said, that didn't focus on any important characters, but just tried to tell a story. Um, What can you tell us about the Sengoku period? Like for someone who doesn't know what this is in history um, and in context of Japan, what exactly is it? Okay, so uh, the Sengoku era is basically the (laughs) huge war, a huge civil war that happened that led to the unification of Japan. So, um, sorry, I laugh at Tom Cruise for Sekiro 2. That's Neo! That's Neo! Um, So anyways... uh, (laughs) The Sengoku era was basically, so you would have these different, like, warlords, basically. Um, I'll just say the, the things in English. Um, uh, that wanted to unify Japan under their own, like, methods or under their own system of beliefs. So all of these warlords just kind of continually fought each other for, like, dominance over the land. And this was probably, like, the bloodiest war in Japanese history because it was just such a long period of time of people just killing each other for, like, succession. And this is where the Ashina actually come into play. So the Ashina were a family that had existed during the Sengoku era, but then had been subsequently wiped out by the Date clan. Now, anyone who knows of the sword, the Masamune, Mm -hmm. he was uh, destroyed by the leader of that clan, Date Masamune, which I was really surprised that he did not show up in some shape or form because people literally call this guy the one-eyed dragon. So I was like, oh, what if he's in this, but he's like actually portrayed as a dragon? 
in relevance to the Ashina, but like, yeah, it there was nothing, none of that. Um, so uh, this was a very tumultuous time in Japanese history, and this eventually again led to the unification of Japan, which led to the Meiji Restoration period and uh, Japanese imperialism as you as you would know it in World War II, and uh, still sort of like fundamentally um, encapsulate a lot of the beliefs that are even now like reflected by uh, modern Japanese politicians. It's it's very interesting how like all of this kind of just has been the same and stayed the same consistently uh, since the end of um, the Sengoku era. But again, basically just a uh, huge, too long, didn't read. Everyone was killing each other trying to be emperor. Oh, yeah, so, the next yeah. shogun, right? The yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. and 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 they did it in any means possible. Yeah, it was just like you would have instances of um, basically like families like intermarrying, and maybe the wife would be a spy, and through that you would have them setting up a coup to kill the husband to take over that family, or that's just, pretty just elaborate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like you yeah. never, it kind of almost feels like you don't know who your enemy is. Um, I, I mean, I think that's like some of the things that, you know, you, they kind of explored in the game as well, where it's like you said, it's not historically accurate, but it just showed like how much can fuel anything between anyone. And I think that's kind of the reason why they introduced the concept of immortality in this game, not just as a game mechanic. And not that it existed, like, you know, back in the Sengoku period, but I think they just wanted to find a reason um, for strife and contest, like, let's say, power. And and that was, like, such... It was... It's... Everyone was contesting for it. Like, we had the Ishina family. We had strife within the Ishina family itself. Like, um, I'm going to say this wrong, and my chat always heckles me for this. Um, but Genishiro? Please correct me if I'm saying uh, that incorrectly. Genichiro. Genichiro. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, but how he wanted to bring glory back to the clan in what he saw fit, and he tried to do anything to do that. Um, and then you had also the Senpu monks, which were the embodiment of Buddhist monks, who also fell for this strife for power. Like yeah. everyone, everyone wanted immortality. Everyone wanted a piece of it. And that makes a lot of sense, given again, like uh, what the Sengoku like presents. And I think we we talked about this like pre-stream, um, and how this is like extremely relevant to that era because uh, you see, like with the Ashina specifically in history, what losing means. I really like. <laughs> no one really remembers the Ashina other than a footnote in the Date clan's history, mm -hmm. because they lost to the Date. They lost to like I think it was like a fourteen-year-old Masamune. Like he just wiped them out. Like that was it. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, like, and they were gone. Like, they, they were just, this family does not exist anymore. They're a footnote in someone else's history at this point. Um, and again, I don't think people would have really paid that much attention to them outside of Sekiro, because I barely knew much about them, um, just in general, because, oh, I, I know about them because, like, the Date clan. I stan Oshu. We love the Date clan. Um, and that's kind of how I know, but, but general knowledge of the Ashina is, like, very, very limited. Um... And this idea of like needing immortality or having this sense of pride in your family because you want your family to continue, you want to have your lineage carry on, uh, is again like it's this very Japanese idea. Uh, and this can even be explained with, for example, um, 
the idea of uh, blood ancestry still being important to Japanese people today regarding like businesses or anything like that, where it's very important that you have like your family and your lineage because that's where you come from. You want to respect this, just that kind of thing. Um, so Genichiro wanting immortality to restore like the pride of the Ashina is like this very like Japanese concept of just like my family must endure. Like it, it's just like I, I want I want to have like successors and to see my family continue. So let me ask you something, and this is maybe something that I don't understand personally. But you said that you like the Date clan and whatnot. Yeah, I love the Date clan. What so like just as you as a person and like people, let's say back of that time, what exactly drew them to these clans to fight for them? Was it like a concept they represented? Like, was it something about the family that made them special, or was it just power that people gravitated towards? Like, what 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 do you find yourself invested in when you think about these clans? Uh, when I think about the Dante clan, I think of, um, I personally think about like the whole mythos around Dante Masamune, and that's why I like the Dante. Uh, the fact that when he was 14 years old, he had control over his clan with the help of his retainer, Katakura Kodro, who is my favorite historical figure in Japanese like, history. So that's why I like the Dante clan too. But it's also the fact that he was born with smallpox, and his retainer carved out his own eye as like, like Masamune's eye. That had smallpox as a sign of fealty and loyalty. Um, and from there, like he kind of established himself as like a very like prominent warlord with again like leading his family at 14 by basically removing the rest of his family from the situation. Um, and this sort of like idea of like wanting his clan and his family to come to prominence um and endure. Um but usually like you will fight for your warlord because you belong in that province, and that province is considered its own state. Think of it like that. Like um, they call it the Sengoku era, like the Warring States period, because basically, if you're from Oshu, then you're fighting for Oshu because you are from that state. If you are from Kansai, then you are fighting for Kansai because you are from that like area, that kind of thing. Like uh, that's kind that kind of dictates your like loyalty to your lord because of your connection to your homeland. Okay. That kind of thing. Yeah. So like, I know that you've like you mentioned a few terms, and I feel like maybe I want to just highlight like some of them for people. Um, the Japanese clans and families at this point were mostly comprised of samurai. Is that correct? Yes. Because it was about military power as well. It wasn't just about yeah. money and whatnot, but military power. Because like military I said, it's the, yes. the the warring um, the warring state period. Um, yeah. You said you mentioned like things like retainers and whatnot, um, which I think are also important. And like you also have like vassals of families, like people who come to serve under the aid of the clan and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And we see those in the game as well. And that's the Hirata family, if I'm not wrong. Um, yes. That serve for the Ashina clan and literally die for the Ashina clan to protect it. And uh, that would be considered like a great honor to die for your lord, like as a retainer. Like and they, uh, they, they literally died to yeah. the last man. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could even argue that uh, Wolf Okami is a retainer to Kuro, and that's why he has this like um, unwavering loyalty because that is what you are expected to do. Like, you, you will die for your master, and that is the greatest honor that serve so maybe i'll ask you a question maybe you know this and maybe you, you wouldn't know but samurai had like an uh, like an honorable code uh, code and they're the ones that generally served these families um yeah. they comprise of these families and you had something you also had something called shinobi uh or ninjas mm -hmm. as we know them in the west uh who aren't exactly samurai they don't exactly follow a specific code but they're covert agents 
Mm. They're basically, their function was espionage, sabotage, infiltration, assassination, guerrilla warfare. Like, so when I think about like uh, the clans probably taking each other down, they would probably use shinobis to get things done. Um, yeah. And in, if I'm not wrong, uh, the game says that both um, Sekiro and the owl are shinobis. They're not samurai. Yeah. So yeah, how do they play a role in this? Like, uh, did were they hired? Were they, like, how can a shinobi be a vassal to the family or to Kuro himself? Uh, so shinobi, um, okay, I'm gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> everyone's gonna learn something here because I don't think this is very well known, but shinobi were not an elite force of ninja. That's a myth. The shinobi <laughs> were just So they didn't just people. like poof in a, into a cloud and just disappear? No. <laughs> Throwing stars weren't even used by shinobi because they considered them too heavy and they made too much noise. Shinobi were actually just normal-ass people that wanted to serve their lord and help them relay information to each, like between these like groups of people. So like people like, that share whispers and knowledge between each other. Like yes. messengers almost. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because I think, um, I have to say, like, because when I did a bit of research about this, Wikipedia said all kinds of things. Like, of course, yeah, maybe there weren't, you know, magic or, like, just really f fancy methods of just being a ninja. But they did use stealth and, stealth and deception to get yeah, things stealth, done. stealth, deception, and jutsu. But not in the way you think jutsu is. It's just sort of like a practicing, like, mantra. Right. So yeah. ninjutsu, right? Yeah. Um, if I'm not getting that wrong, is just the techniques of gathering information without being detected right so just yes. like quietly obtaining information just making sure that you're doing your job and you're not seen and you're not there so if that involved like disguise or f like running around concealment medicine mm -hmm. they did it exactly so. uh, ultra cordis actually brought up something great in the chat so an ordinary peasant spying on some big army could be called a ninja that's exactly what a ninja is <laughs> okay um, I want to talk about, like, a plug a video. It's by Asian Boss, and they actually interviewed the last member of the Koga clan. And the Koga clan is... Koga. They are the oldest generation of ninja. He is the last remaining ninja. Like, the act, like the literal last remaining ninja. Like That, on would, the that would be really interesting yeah. to see. Yeah. They actually interviewed him, and you can learn more about what a ninja does and what a ninja actually was, or what a shinobi was. Um through that video it's just asian boss google ninja asian boss whatever and you can you can learn more about that there but they did use like so they didn't actually hold a code or whatnot so whatever they had to whether it dis be dishonorable or not mm, they would no, do no. it or is, um, is that wrong um i imagine it depends on what the ninja believes is right or what they want to follow Okay. Um, it's not so much like they don't have their own bushido, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's it's strictly like a samurai thing. Like bushido, bushido is the way of the warriors. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. The way of the warrior. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm just like. It's yeah. just the it's just the term for like what yeah. the samurai go by. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they they don't follow that. They follow sort of like uh, what they do within their best interests of the country, or like uh, maybe. Okami feels very strongly towards like his duty towards Kuro because of I don't know how he was by Owl, so maybe that's why he follows his code so stringently. You know, like it, it's all based on like how he feels. He uh, but they left it up for interpretation in the game. It's yes. like, did you want to be the shinobi that you know is loyal to your to your um 
to your master or to your Lord? Or did you want to be the one that was deceitful Mm -hmm. in the last moments? Because that was one of the endings. That's, I think, considered the bad ending when you just obey the iron code of the owl Mm -hmm. and um, destroy those. It's an interesting conversation for that ending because it's, again, this idea of, like, uh, filial piety that is so heavily enforced among, like, East Asian families. Like, being completely loyal to your family. Are you loyal to your family or are you loyal to your convictions? And, like, I like that. I like having that option. I really, really like that. Which one did you feel compelled to? Um, I was loyal to my convictions. Okay. So yeah. yourself. You're not what yeah. anyone tells you to do or wants yeah. you to do, but yourself. Thank you. Okay, yeah. that's that's kind of cool. Um, so we we talked about why we, they focus on the Ashina clan and like it not being that much of a footnote in history. But I think maybe that's why Miyazaki probably wanted to explore it because it doesn't have like any two major characters or like any major people in there that it could probably take and distract from the conversation, like not the conversation, but the scenario. But they maybe wanted to leave it to interpretation that they fought amongst themselves and destroyed themselves because of whatever reason. And in this game, it would be the immortality um, that they were trying to seek. And I think that's what ended up happening. That was their demise, right? Like just fighting amongst each other and then in that one ending if you pursue shura which is just the cycle of killing and death then sekiro lays waste to everything in his path like he just destroys everything yeah he just he just becomes a demon like he just yeah um i do like the shura ending just because it feels kind of like folklore you know like uh like once upon a time, there was, like, this shinobi that had served this, like, great lord, and, like, um, he killed so much, he became, like, a demon, and that demon, like, ravaged the lands, and some say that he still persists there, you know? Like, it's, it's, it, it felt very, um, very fantastical in that way, I guess. Is is that, so? Let me ask you this because you said like it still persists in the land and stuff like that. Um, based as like a Japanese person and based like maybe let's say on Shinto beliefs and whatnot, do people still to this day feel like there may be like deities among them or just like there might be presences of like let's say hatred or whatnot in like specific areas based on like what happened in the previous time in history or like based on stories or is that just not that prevalent these days? I know there are still some folklore that people believe, such as like I think there is a forest. Uh, it's not the suicide forest, it's a forest, but people believe that so many people died there during the Sengoku era that there is a Gashadokuro there. So people will deliberately avoid that forest because of that. And a Gashadokuro is a um, a huge skeleton. Okay. And it's comprised of many small skeletons. That sounds that a lot died. like Nita from Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, all these people that had died there in the Sengoku era were just kind of like left there, and then through their malice and the way they were killed, like, uh, they became, like, a, a, a bigger skeleton. They became one big skeleton, and that skeleton resides in that forest, so no one kind of goes that way. So, I, I have to um, say that the mythology and folklore and, like, the images associated with in J- and Japan are very colorful and very vivid. They're mm. very spooky if you take a look at these images of, like, anything, like ghosts or what whatnot, supernatural creatures. Woodblock carving. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, um... Yeah, I agree. They are very uh, vivid, but I think it's due to the fact that like it was woodblock carving, woodblock printing, like that, that back then. Okay. Mm. Um, I know you wanted to talk about the Sengoku era and probably even 
was did you say classism or just the caste system and what oh the classism but that was yeah. in relation to dojin okay uh, oh yeah right which we're going yeah. to get into yeah yeah yes. well, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah okay so, so we're gonna we're gonna bring up how this like kind of all correlates like <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. in the game um leprosy baby <laughs> yes leprosy in japan yeah <laughs> uh okay so shinto beliefs you mentioned something to me that's really important you talked about purity and corruption yes and what those mean like sin and impurity which is sume and kega okay you're gonna have to excuse me for like the rest of this because i might just butcher some japanese things but i'm trying my best so um what exactly are those like what is the belief behind that um just between like the concepts of like purity and sin in japan mm-hmm. so it's different from your uh western like idea of like sin and like purity regarding like christianity um this is oh fuck this is hard to explain um how to explain it with sekiro because that's probably the easiest that that, that actually yeah media. might be a really yeah. good relevance yeah. to it um so like they use dragon rot as like a form of corruption in that game basically and dragon rot is meant to sort of embody this corruption um through stagnation i suppose um and shinto purity is it's it has nothing to really do with morality but less with like practice if that makes sense okay um bad at explaining religions no that's okay (laughs) if if it's not it's not comfortable for you then that's fine no no no, i I, i'm just bad at it no yeah yeah, i know it's it's a little bit hard to put into perspective for people um yeah because it's something that I just kind of like grew up with, so I just kind of like innately understand. But having to like actually explain it in practice is like somewhat difficult. Um, but again, like uh, this idea of like uh, corruption within like Shintoism um, can be pretty accurately like I guess visually portrayed through the dragon rot, um, and just this like idea of like uh, selfishness in relation to the Senpo Temple monks and their corruption regarding their uh, infatuation with, like, immortality or seeking the immortality. Right, and there was whole levels of corruption in the game that we got to witness, and it just carried on as we proceeded with the game. Because as far as the story goes, dragon heritage was kind of, like, bestowed upon the land, um, and people attaining it and holding that link also correlated with the corruption that was involved with using that power of immortality yeah. and having that oath. And with every like cycle of death that we saw in the game, the sickness known as dragon rot spread across the lands, killed all around it, and sent the world into further disorder. Um, and I think that you will see a lot of references in there that might have actually uh, that might actually indicate like how much corruption there was in land. And either it could have been because of the dragon heritage or because corruption already existed in these lands, and this stuff was gravi- like gravitated towards it. Mm, um, yeah. And so like when I was looking up this stuff. I felt like maybe even the presence of yokai and yurai, so I might be saying those wrong as well, which are ghosts. Um, yes. Yeah, so yokai are ghosts, strange apparitions, and supernatural... No, no, uh, oh, wait, sorry. Go oh, ahead. No, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the yokai are like the demons, mm-hmm. and yeah, yurai can still be perceived as yokai, 
but yurei are just like ghosts so like orin for example yeah so so the yokai are like supernatural monsters that we and demons that we generally see in japanese folklore right and they can either be malevolent or mischievous depending on like their nature and like some good examples of that from the game are um the centipedes i think or like we might yeah, centipedes are gross yeah so the centipedes <laughs> are i think what is also like the bigger um arching story for the centipede is the omokade which is the giant centipede right omokade mm, yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and those are examples of yokai. And I feel like in certain areas of the game, um, you'll see like the presence of more of them uh, in a certain area. Um, and you'll see also more corruption. Like Mibu Village is like a very good example for me because when I go to Mibu Village or let's say even the depths of the Sunken Valley, like I'll notice that there's a lot of corruption in there and you'll see like apparitions, you'll see ghosts, you'll see all kinds of things, you'll see the dead. And it feels like those are big areas where that corruption kind of pooled um, in the lands. But the Uri, right, they're, it, it's, it's analogous to ghosts in, in, in yeah. Western, yeah, Western. Yeah. Western uh, culture, um, but they're the souls and spirits of the dead, right? Or the departed spirits of the dead. And yes. if I'm not wrong, the soul or the reikon uh, in Japanese mm. it leaves the body when a person dies and enters a form of purgatory. But you need funeral rites to make sure that passage um, yeah. happens correctly and the spirit joins the ancestors. But yes. if a person dies violently like let's say murder or suicide or doesn't get proper rights and there were let's say negative emotions or powerful emotions like revenge hate sorrow jealousy upon death then that raycon or that soul transforms into the uri or the ghosts and bridges back to the physical world yes exactly that it's when anyone dies in any way that might have any strong negative emotion attached to it then they will stay like here basically um because they cannot move on it's again like that concept of purgatory that you talked about or again having funeral rites that's why you have people that will volunteer to go to the suicide forest and give these people like funeral rites oh okay so they can pass on like there are volunteers of people that go and do that. I, I did not know about that but that's good because then if they if like the belief of the soul needs to passage uh to like take passage properly um mm -hmm. then that would be very helpful for those people Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. So you come across a couple of Yurei in the game. You, it's Orin, Orin. And then, yeah, and then the Headless. Yeah, the Headless, and you have several forms of them because I think it was just meant to represent many uh, different like generals or war figures or of that time that died in very awful means, and they had they all had different stories. Like if you take a look at the um, item that you got from them after you took took down the Headless, it will like have a brief description of like what kind of person they were, how did they die, and why it is they turn into like a headless uh ghost that mm. haunts the lands but yeah yes. Oren i think was quite spooky like coming across her <laughs> like yeah, I, I, I had like a feeling i had a feeling because when i first came across the guy who said that he heard the sounds of the instrument which i'm forgetting the name of right now um and he felt like a call and a pull in a certain direction it was very scary to come across her <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah the samurai that's basically supposed to be like an uh Analog to Yasuke, the the retainer to Oda Nobunaga. Okay, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And so, yeah, like, yeah. somehow he was compelled to this call of, yeah, of yeah, like Oren. He's, yeah, he's not Yasuke in name, but it's clear that this is supposed to be sort of like 
ah, like there was a uh, African samurai in Japan at the time, and this is definitely like a reference to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, immortality doesn't exist. Didn't exist in this timeline, no. but it was still included in the game. Yes. But it does have basis in some of the, let's say, folklore out there. Talk about mermaids, huh? <laughs> well, yeah. we are going to talk about mermaids, but there were, there, I have so many thoughts about this because okay. they discuss like so many different forms of immortality. It wasn't just one source because in the game, they tell you that the dragon blood or dragon heritage is one source of immortality and the one that everyone's contesting for, but not everyone has their hands on it because Kuro had that dragon heritage and he was that link and he bestowed it upon people through, I think, I believe the dragon blood and whatnot. And he was the only one that could give that link to someone else and that's what was the object of the game like uh i'm gonna say this wrong again genichiro was yes, trying to yes. take okay was trying to take that for himself so he could use it the way he saw fit and he didn't think that sekiro was worth it um and he tried to basically get kuro to give that to him um and so let me let me just like say like mention the topics that i wanted to like talk about but the um the centipedes which are the yokai or the demons or whatnot um supernatural creatures i feel like they're one source of immortality which i really would like to discuss yes. the <laughs> the divine bugs. yeah the divine dragon and the mermaids as you mentioned which i think are really cool as well and they connect to the characters in the story in a really beautiful way um and then the carp the carp that well, yeah <laughs> which i feel like is more known to people because i feel like everyone's encountered the carp that's you know tries to swim up the fountain to basically become a dragon everyone here seen you play yakuza kiwami uh, i don't know about it. everyone but i'm sure a lot of people know this story like through it's, it's such a prevalent theme i feel like you've you've seen it one place or another um or you've seen like the tattoos that people have of this or like you know their their correlation with it. and i'm sure you could even like connect a little bit with the story of the carp and the dragon um, yeah, I have a dragon on my chest, by the way. <laughs> yeah, a dragon ascending out of the water, so yeah. It's it's a very, very cool tattoo. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's talk about centipedes. Oh, man. Um, those were very, very creepy to come across in the game. Um, and I never really understood their purpose. It just felt like this, this body was just reanimated by a centipede. Um, and it's just they couldn't die. They wouldn't die. Like when you tried to kill anything that was, you know, infested with a centipede, the only way to kill it was the mortal blade, which is meant to kill anything that has immortality, right? Mm -hmm. So, well, specific kinds of immortality. immortality yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I think this comes from um, folklore, a, a very particular creature called the omokade. Omokade, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not the exact same story, but it draws references to it. But it was this huge millipeder centipede. Um, and it was so large that it like wrapped itself around a mountain. Um, and uh, people had no idea how to get rid of it. It was poisonous. It was dangerous. And no one dared to oppose it. And it, it was so large that people even say dragons feared it. Like it wasn't just, it was a threat to even dragons. Um, mm -hmm. And w one night, I think a warrior by the name of Hidesato 
corruption that basically happened with them because they also wanted power. They even had like those, um, uh, they call them rats in the game. I'm forgetting the name for them now. Basically like spying on the Ishina family to get their secrets and the actual true source of immortality. Oh, the Kappa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it actually yeah. the Kappa? Is I that mean, what they... They look like They Kappa. look like it, yeah. Kappa. But they seemed like yeah. uh, very like... They, they seemed human in, in ways yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they looked like very small people. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about that too, but I just I guess I didn't make that link. Maybe it's more apparent to other people than me. <laughs> it, it just it looked like Kappa. Someone was like, "Oh, they're the Kappa," but you know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's this one item in the game. It's called the Holy Infested Chapter, where it says a centipede came to the monks and promised them an eternity. Um. And I think what this probably symbolizes, because we know the centipedes hate dragons, based on this story. And they're like the opposite of the dragon. I feel like maybe they came to them as like a solution to the immortality that they were trying to seek. And especially like with their experimentations and things like that. And so like they were drawn to the monks themselves or anyone who was like of the same kind of nature, like just so compelled towards immortality that they sought it out. Uh, and I don't think it gives anyone free will when you get like that corruption because it doesn't seem like they're moving of their own accord or not. It just not even like i, I want to not even say symbiotic or anything it's just parasitic it just yeah. it lives within you and that's it and it was just the purpose of corrupting people and like we see that like in several things like we had the great ape that was corrupted with um a centipede like a lot of the monks were corrupted and then even the corrupted monk which conveniently has that title there um was infested with a centipede mm, yes, and yes. um what it seemed to me is like that who would infested, it seemed that they had the same resolve that they had in life. Like we saw the guardian ape, which I think is an example of a um, yokai, I think, because it's a supernatural creature. Yes. Yeah. That's actually based off of like a, a giant um, like ape demon in Japan. I can't remember the name right now, but there is actually a giant white ape demon. Okay. in Japanese folklore like that's an actual thing um I forgot the exact name of it right now though but that that's real at least people thought it was real that there were giant fucking monkeys by hot springs and shit yes King Kong <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah yeah but the funny thing is is like even if that creature was infested with um the centipede and we find out that like once we basically like decapitated and it just like comes back alive. It was still kind of like protecting its area. Like we know that it was protecting the lotus that was there. Um, and even later on when we encounter it, it was protecting its um, its bri not bride, but like its spouse or partner or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it was very much like still had the same kind of notions it had in life, but it wasn't fighting of its own accord. It was just kind of like corrupted and just hostile in general and uh, like another example i'm going to talk about later is the corrupted monk herself i feel has that kind of same notion yeah you're excited about that one <laughs> yeah, i love that i love that story <laughs> yeah it's a cool story like a lot of yeah, the characters yeah. in sekiro actually have um like people have uh, an idea or speculation and i think me and Kazuma came to similar conclusions of like who they could be in mythology and folklore and who they might symbolize and why that's important because it all comes back into that story of like the overarching story of Sekiro. Mm. Yes. 
So we were talking about the centipedes, like being definitely like a symbol for corruption in the land. Uh, and I think like they're, they gravitate there as well, just because of the existence of the dragon or the divine dragon, as we know exactly. within the game. Um, what I wanted to actually like mention about this was like before we go into the corrupted monk and stuff like that, because I feel like that symbolizes a lot more things, but that maybe need to be explained with the presence of like the divine dragon. Um, I think one of the interesting things about it is that as far as I know, dragons were not really like, they didn't originate in Japan, but they were brought. Um, and like they, they even mentioned that in the game as well, that they were brought, like it was an, introduced from the West. It, was, it wasn't like something that belonged. China. China, yeah. right? Yeah. Some China. people even say Korea, but that it didn't originate there. And it was brought to the lands by someone else. And in the story, they say, I think it was uh, Takaru who did so, who was the last um, uh, person who had immortal severance or that immortal oath. And uh, he even had like taken a branch um, as he left the divine realm with the divine dragon in it, which was the ever blossom branch uh, as like a parting gift to leave it. But I think some of the most important things about it is the existence of where the divine dragon is, is in a place called the Fountainhead Palace, yes. um, which I know most people probably would not know themselves, but I don't think it is like a worldly place. It is definitely like, I think, I'm not saying that it's not like a physical place or like people who ordinary people can't get to it because I think there's references of like some of the characters being in those areas um, that we hear about like Tomoe and like even Emma herself and whatnot and Takaro and whatnot. But it is an area where the sacred meets the physical world. Yes. Um, and like one of the clearest signs of that was actually like these Tory gates. Like I think before you go towards the divine dragon encounter, you find have these Tory gates that just several of them lining um, the area there. And the Tory gate is a, tra a traditional Japanese gate, which is commonly found at the entrance of a Shinto shrine. Um, and it's meant to like democrate an area of, um, mundane to sacred so like you're you're entering yeah. a sacred space and there was quite a few of them like just before that encounter um so that being said mm -hmm. i know you want to talk about the corrupted monk no no keep going <laughs> we'll get to mermaids later no, I think it's important because I okay. think, well, th there's a lot of like uh, contesting like a p like thoughts uh, in this area because you got the divine dragon, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the one that basically bestowed the power of immortality in the land. And it's like the purest form of it. And Kuro basically held that power. Um, you had the Fountainhead Palace that was not accessible to people. And you had to t like you had to take supernatural means to get there. And I think this is really interesting. And people like always like are asking about rope bro. They name it rope bro in, in like forums and communities. Like, what is this weird creature? This rope creature, a straw man that takes us up um, to this fountainhead palace. And with the research that I did, and I don't know if you found anything yourself, but it actually is. It's not a supernatural entity. But the rope that it's made of um, is called the Shimanawa. Uh, Shimanawa. Yeah, the Shimanawa. Yes. And these ropes are used for ritual purification um, in Shinto beliefs. 
and they can actually vary in uh, size. Uh, if you look up on the internet, there are like mass there are shrines with massive like versions of these ropes uh, outside the area. Um, and they're just meant to represent a sacred or pure space. And they're often found like, you know, at Shinto shrines, Torah gate, uh, gates and sacred landmarks. And so, like, while this isn't, like, a supernatural creature, I think it was meant to show us that this rope that's taking us to this area, to the Fountainhead Palace, is a sacred space. It's not a place that we can go by any normal means. Like, it's meant to, like, illuminate to us, like, the mundane world to a sacred place. So, like, when we went through that wedding cavern or whatnot, we had to... Um, we had to take the passage through the Shimanawa that took us up there and led us to this other area. But the interesting thing about it is like we couldn't just normally summon this creature. Like it didn't just come to us because we called for it or whatever. We had to obtain the mortal blade and mm-hmm. the mortal blade came to us from the divine child. And if we said that the divine child is like a reference to the Dragon King's daughter, um, who kind of is like the protector of the dragon uh, of the dragon itself, then it's mm-hmm. possible she's like somewhat like of a gatekeeper to the divine dragon itself. And uh, that's the only way that we can seek passages of she like basically gives us that power to go there mm-hmm. and use that rope to basically climb into the sacred space. Um, and so here's where here's where the corrupted monk comes in. It's a very interesting story. But the corrupted monk actually sits right outside the wedding wedding cave the first time you encounter the corrupted monk. And it's in spiritual form, right? It was like a ghost or an apparition. It um, It wasn't like a physical form or whatnot. And then you defeat it there. It was just like you kill you killed the corrupted monk there. You use the um what was it called? The divine confetti that you yeah. just like, toss into the air. <laughs> the party confetti. Which mm-hmm. is really but you told me is a really bad translation for like what it actually yeah, is. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I don't know how to describe this. Just like I think of confetti, I think of like, oh I'm having a party, not I'm purifying the land. Exactly. And so <laughs> that's actually what it is, because in Shita beliefs, like there are some um I don't know if you would call them exorcism, but there are some ritual practices that you can use to, let's say, not allow like a specific entity inside your home or like to basically remove like something from any certain area. Like it's just for sacred purposes. Um, I would call that exorcism. Yeah. Exorcism. (laughs) Or sealing something into some like sealing. You, yeah. d- you destroy her there right before you go up um, into the Fountainhead Palace. But then as you enter the Fountainhead Palace, she's also there. But this time you fight her. And this time you also find out that she's infested with the centipede as well. But she seems to be kind of also gatekeeping this area on both sides. Like both, like before you go up into the Fountainhead Palace and as you get into it, like you see her twice. Mm-hmm. You tell me the basis of the story of the Corrupted Monk. So the Corrupted Monk, uh, when you get an item drawn, uh, it basically gives the Corrupted Monk Yao as a name. And Yao was important because there was a very famous practitioner of Onmyodo, Yao Bikuni. And she was a woman that ate the flesh of a mermaid, like on accident. Mm -hmm. And because of this, she gained immortality. She lived for like 800 years. Uh, Nothing changed. Like uh, her appearance didn't grow old or anything. Um, and the corrupted monk is like very clearly like uh, a reference to Yao Bikuni. 
was again like a very prominent uh figure in like japanese myth especially in the heian period which is when you had again like the uh, onmyodo different onmyoji which were basically people that could uh channel um like uh yeah i i didn't understand they, they that would concept use, like, the, but the like talismans they would they're okay. basically like Shinto priests, you know, like that kind of thing. How do you accidentally do that? Uh, so she was eating at like a friend's house with her husband and the guy had caught a mermaid and he was like, oh, I read a that... different story, <laughs> but it's similar. Oh, really? Yeah, I read yeah, a different yeah. story. It's similar, but like someone had caught an unusual fish mm-hmm. and it had a human face on it. Yeah. And people were like, no, don't eat that fish. But he cooked it up anyways. Yeah, and then, like, she didn't see the head, so she ate part of the tail. And then because of that, she gained immortality. Okay, yeah. th- that's that's maybe the story you've heard. I don't know. I guess there's different stories out there, but it's it's pretty much similar. But, like, basically, people, he, he served it to his guests, and they didn't want to eat it. And this man carelessly took it home as he was drunk, and his daughter ate from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, th- that's another version of the myth, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's the same thing. I mean, like, she apparently, you know, never aged. She lived 800 years. Um mm-hmm. And she yeah. basically married and the husband grew old and died and she didn't die. And she kept her same youthful appearance. And this kept happening over and over. Like she was widowed several times over. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Yao Bikuni is a very prominent figure in the Heian era of Japan, which is an era that's synonymous with a lot of folklore, uh, such as um, like Shuten Doji, uh, uh, Minamoto no Raiko, like all that kind of thing, like all of these super old like myths regarding again like yokai, uh, Shintoism on Miyoto. So with that monk being there, Yao, um, it's easy to assume that this is supposed to be referenced to Yao Bikuni, and uh, she has been protecting like this gate for hundreds of years at this point, uh, with the immortality bestowed upon her, probably through the centipede, because I guess. The mermaid myth doesn't really exist, but you could also uh, proxy that the mermaid in question would be the dragon carp. And I don't know if people are familiar with the dragon carp. It's an interesting story. Yeah, you should yeah. you should definitely yeah. tell it. <laughs> what is so, the dragon carp? So the dragon carp is a koi fish uh, that has ascended through the Tori Gate, but has kept its body and has the face of a dragon and japanese dragons actually have faces as weird and fucked up as that sounds the faces are not i think it's kind of like uncanny but yeah 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 so this is usually when a magic uh magic carp someone said magic carp in the chat anyways (laughs) magic carp (laughs) yeah Um, just scared us and um when the 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 koi fish does not want to leave its family or its basically like its community to ascend to the lonely night like the lonely life of like being a dragon because being a dragon means like being very solitary when you see one that have like a dragon tattoo on them mm-hmm. um that they still want to retain a sense of family but they also have like the pride or like the uh wisdom of a dragon so you'll have like a carp with like the dragon's head and that being very human leads to again like the analogy of that maybe being like a mermaid and maybe she ate from that but it was really a dragon car because dragons are bestowing uh immortality and like that that's kind of like a prevalent theme in this right because i think like the only references to any immortality i found at all in japanese um folklore was just this story 
where like if you eat this mermaid flesh which actually are like not even like good omens but like if you if you find mermaids they're just like bad bad symbols um but this girl apparently had like a really strange story where she was immortal like she lived a really long life um and so like i have like a different theory about this but it's said that in her travels she always like spoke to a lot of people that wanted to be young forever and never die like she heard Mm -hmm. this a lot like you know i just want to live forever um but she uh but her story actually probably symbolizes those who fear death and try Mm -hmm. to teach them that living a long life doesn't mean happiness and so like she kind of is like a warning to those that try to seek immortality and probably that's why she's there so like with the name corrupted and whatnot and like maybe this could be a reference to the infestation that she has within her at some point in her life probably even happened like whether she tried to end her life and the infestation happened or um whether she was infested all along with this centipede she was still there like protecting this sacred place and i think like uh that at least that's my theory of it that she wanted to be a warning to those that tried to seek immortality it doesn't mean like happiness or anything like it could maybe grant you power but at what cost i completely yeah. agree because like yaobikuni is a cautionary tale mm-hmm. in japanese folklore so her being there is like a warning to this like you're about to approach something that maybe you're not ready for but you think that you're yeah, that you're willing to accept or put upon yourself, and I think that's why, like, she's on like both sides of this passage that you have to take. Exactly. Um, yeah, but I still think that it does have relevance to the carp. Like, like you said, it's a proxy for the carp because it's a very interesting story. But like, as you see the map, hold on, let me see if I can pull this up on screen. The map of like the world of Sekiro. There is the Fountainhead Palace. And from the Fountainhead Palace, like you have these fountains, like the stream that basically comes down. And like we know that the divine dragon um, and its properties and possibly even like dragon blood or whatnot, like imbued and changed the properties of the water. And that water, oh, yeah. yeah, that water flows. about ki- uh, Kiyomizudera? Huh? What is, okay, <laughs> it, what is that? <laughs> Oh, I thought you were gonna talk about uh, Kiyo, Kiyo Mizudera. Okay. Oh no. Oh yeah. That's the that's yeah, uh, the okay. shrine or the shrine or the area, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. I, the, I probably the, just didn't recognize the, the pronunciation. Right. This magical properties of th- three magical waters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the Fountainhead waters flow from the Fountainhead Palace, and then they kind of pool. And if you like, take a look at the map. Like they kind of like move around, and they pool in the Mibu Village, which is an area that we see like a lot of. Um, dead people and a lot of problems and things like that and it feels like as it kind of like pulls into the land its properties in nature um change and get corrupted as well and you also find it like in the sunken valley like these waters that basically flow from this area um but i think it's also interesting because if let's say it does have the story of the carp and like flowing upstream there's a lot of links that we can make about mibu village about the people with the red eyes about the experimentations that dosaku the abandoned dungeon um surgeon did and just like the meaning of the carp and like another form of immortality uh that we talked about where like the carp tries to become the dragon mm-hmm. um i don't know if you wanted to go into that yourself but I feel like maybe even just like the location of the Fountainhead Palace and like possibly like the proxy, like uh, the the proxy we talked about for the carp and the corrupted monk, that it could be also like people who wanted to attain immortality and go up that stream. 
Yes, yeah, basically, again, like, the symbolism of, like, the red eyes of being associated with the failed immortality trying, like, them trying to get immortality through the carp and ultimately failing, and the story of the carp trying to ascend through the Tori Gate by going up the waters. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Kiyomizudera earlier because that is what the Fountainhead Palace is based off of, and the Kiyomizudera is supposed to have three sacred, like, uh, rivers basically, three sacred waterfalls. One gives you wealth, the other one, uh, hang on, it gives you. I think I have this as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives you um, success, love, and then longevity. So basically, like immortality. But con- if you drink from all three, that will like curse you to like the most miserable life you have ever lived. Oh, <laughs> so-, so, like, greed basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah it- it'll-, it'll show that you're like really greedy and it's bad um so with this again like this uh real life sort of like connection to this because the Dera is an actual place in japan um you can go visit there if you want you know you travel go to japan visit the Dera. Uh, <laughs> just like a plug in for like a tourist group here <laughs> yeah exactly uh go on a trip with me what's up with the Kiyomizudera uh immortality sure just be my tour guide you know, yeah. and i'll definitely come along yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> take chat with us um sort of like uh people trying to attain this by maybe drinking like rivers from the fountainhead palace or even like um the corruption surrounding this as it as it basically leaves like this immaterial realm the sacred realm and uh how the corruption like manifests around that you know <laughs> sorry someone made me laugh <laughs> time to visit and grab two drinks <laughs> yeah good idea <laughs> yeah 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 um but yeah, you mentioned something really important, like this failed uh, immortality, because oh, there's like so many, so many connections to this that I've basically found in the story. One, you had a huge carp. I mean, like when you wanted to the Fountainhead Palace, there was a huge, a huge, huge carp. And it was apparently, I think, the one that could actually kind of like ascend through the Tory Gate and become that dragon, if it's so pleased. Um, yeah. And there were like these pot nobles, like these little creatures, like that were basically in in these little pots, literally like extending their hand, wishing for just these carp scales because all they wanted to do was to attain like a taste of that immortality, like wanted to become that carp and possibly be even immortal themselves. Um, and they used you in whatever way possible to try and and you know get a piece of that and like if you follow that quest to succession um and you help the pot nobles out they we kill i think the giant carp and they become the carp themselves in those waters and so like also just another form of immortality that people try to pursue but um when i mentioned like the fountainhead palace waters like flowing into other areas um, particularly mibu village uh we saw like examples of things called like a red carp there uh in in one of the waters and i think this was really interesting and i really like the story of this and making the connection of this but that red carp we were tasked by um the abandoned surgeon which i know you guys you want to talk about disaku which we will definitely talk about um to get to attain something called the red eyes and the red eyes belonged to a carp that lived in the mibu village pond it had two red eyes uh and it was the eyes and the eyes were red because they couldn't become masters, as the item um, text uh, says. And I think the reason why it has like this important note is because it's possible that this carp wanted to become 
one of these carps that could ascend the Torah gates and become a dragon at some point, but it never was one of those carps. And it was just, it, and the red can like symbolize like all kinds of things, like basically this jealousy or this ambition that it could never achieve or just like fail, like failure basically. And so they're considered incomplete um, carps, um, but their eyes are everlasting. And so the Dosaku or Dojin um, in the abandoned dungeon wanted these eyes to improve his procedure. And this is where it gets a little bit weird. He uses these eyes to basically uh, experiment on people in the abandoned dungeons. And he does, he's actually successful in quite a few instances where, like, let's say the ogres, which are just humans, by the way, they're not actually oni, I think, in the story. They're just meant to look like the oni and, like, be yeah. just hard to take down. Um, yeah. And just very scary um but through the powers of like the red uh, carp eyes and whatever they were just hostile entities like they didn't seem like they weren't thinking they were just kind of like hostile and they like were aggressive um and they weren't immortal definitely not but they were hard to take down so like i feel like it just gave them strength but um not much more than that and i think you come across like another item in the game called a red mass and i think this also comes from the red carp itself and people used to consume it um as well for like uh if i remember it was like something to do with powers but it's it the item description is also like another lingering trace of those unable to achieve their desires and so like i think like the people that were affected in the mibu village and like the people that were obsessed with this the this power that came from the red eyes and whatnot was actually all people who wanted immortality as well, but failed to get it and were thus like cursed or like affected by this process. That mm, they tried yeah. to, that they tried to achieve and it was like imperfect. Um, and probably like more signs of corruption in the land that we were talking about. And like like I said, you could see the the Mibu village was like a large area of discontent. Um, there were Uri, there were undead, uh, there were people obsessed with like the waters. Like there were like there was a priest commanding everyone to drink the waters there, and it affected the people. And like presumably because they were like trying to attain power or like whatever the fountainhead waters like bestowed upon them. Um, and this is probably like what. Dosaku's goal was all along the um oh no not Dosaku I'm I keep mixing up their names it's Dojin Dojin, Dojin. Yeah, yeah Dojin yeah but I want you to tell us a little bit about that because I think it's a very interesting story I have a theory for it but I really like your uh, interpretation of who Dojin is <laughs> all right yeah. so Dojin <laughs> if you look at his face or his outfit yeah he has the monk attire but he also wears this like face mask that is synonymous with what people who had leprosy war in Sengoku era Japan. You'll find this in reference if you just look up Otani Yoshitsugu. Um, he had to wear this mask, and he was also a famous warlord in Sengoku era of Japan um, who was dying of leprosy. Um, so my theory is that uh, Dojin is someone who was dying of leprosy and seeking immortality. So... Um, and we also talked about this in relation to the caste system in Japan regarding how at one point maybe he was a monk and then he became terminally ill with leprosy and then decided to deal in death. And when you are someone who deals in death or slaughters animals, anything like that during this time, you gain the social status of being a burakumi, 
And a burakumin is literally the lowest level you could be in Japanese society because you touching or associating with like corpses is considered like extremely taboo in both Shinto and Buddhist belief. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the idea or like the feeling I had with this character is that perhaps he was a monk once and um, uh, again got very sick and is now looking for a way to life probably through some death. Um, and so he becomes Burakumin and is experimenting on people in the dungeons and that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that's kind of also like the, the thought I had as well, because it, it's Buddhist beliefs say that if you have leprosy, it's like a punishment, punishment or yeah, the greatest yeah. punishment. It's yeah. like a karmic type of disease that is like retribution for like sins in your past life. So it's very possible that Dojin himself could have been just, you know, a monk that worked at the Senpu temple um, or was like part of the Senpu temple, had leprosy. And it was cast out and thus like it fueled his desires to find a cure, like you said, or like find an answer to his problems. Or just that he was just, as simply as you said, like Burak- Burakumin. Burakumin, all right. Yeah. And he was just like one of those, like the lowest uh, class of society where he was just tasked to work in unsavory um unsavory jobs that had to deal with impurity and like death and whatnot. And like, so still, it, it fueled his, it, it gave him like access to all this research to do whatever he wanted. And he tried to attain his own means of leprosy. And like, maybe he was inspired by that carp story. Like, you know, maybe if he could use those powers or would like obtain something from the carp, because obviously he didn't have access to the Fountainhead Palace, then he can maybe become the carp that swims up that river. Stream. Like, like someone who's like from the lowest caste in society. Yeah. And afflicted with potentially like this disease and then defying this and like going all the way up and ascending to like this level of like being a dragon. Yeah. And it's it's like it's so there's so many underlining themes in this game that I don't know if like even Miyazaki intentionally <laughs> added them in there, but they're very prevalent. Like like you said, like just wanting to break those shackles that you have in your own life. And like this was the perfect time for it. I mean, in this in the Sengoku period, everyone wanted power. Everyone wanted something and everyone wanted to make a name for themselves and uh, try and attain it and like nothing was off the table. So why not? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, power was basically synonymous with like success in living. So having power meant everything. Or having a good allegiance, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so this the, I, I made a me- I made a note for this because I know that you seemed very interested about it. Um but there was one notable character in history in Japanese history mm-hmm. that was affected by leprosy. I know you're avid about yeah. this. Oh yes. <laughs> because yeah. like cuz what we're saying now about the caste system and um leprosy generally being something that you're discriminated for. I think you, you might have mentioned it, or I'm just getting the name wrong. Uh, Otani? Otani Yoshitsugu. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why, why are you drawn to him? Like, what's, why is his story special? Um, because, okay, so, like, Otani Yoshitsugu sort of just, like, arrived, and he was, like, a st- strategic genius. There was, he was linked to no one. He was literally a nobody in society. But he had gained the favor of Ishida Mitsunari, who was one of um, Hideyoshi, like, another one of these guys that tried to unify Japan. The general warlords of Japan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, there were the big three. There was Naga, Hideyoshi, and Ieyasu. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and he had basically, like, uh, Mitsunari had been a huge Star Wars supporter of Hideyoshi. Um, and Yoshitsugu had gained his attention. So during one of these meetings, you know, everyone's, like, gonna strategize and shit. Uh, no one would drink from the teacup after uh, Yoshitsugu had, had drank from it. So basically you drink and then you pass it over and everyone drinks. So it all stopped at him. And okay. Mitsunari reached over and drank from it. And that was like a that huge, was huge sign. Yeah. yeah, that was like a huge He's like, fuck it. I don't care about if I get leprosy. I don't care about associating with this man. Like, uh, he's like, he's beyond like his status as someone with leprosy. So uh, his story is literally like the idea that someone who was nothing became like, like a huge figure in uh, Japanese history. Of course, there's also speculation that uh, Yoshitsugu was Hideyoshi after Hideyoshi died during battle and he had just covered himself in bandages or something and i don't know it it that's just uh people <laughs> they have all kinds of yeah. yeah i mean it yeah, happens yeah. all throughout history there's yeah. always like some like tupac never died or whatever that yeah, kind yeah, of stuff yeah, yeah. And, and this is like the equivalent of that like hideyoshi never died he just became a leper i guess yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> easiest way to like live a life like under the radar <laughs> yeah I, i'm just gonna become a leper mm -hmm. uh <laughs> But uh, but yeah, um, that that's why uh, this particular historical figure I think is like very important to look at in terms of like leprosy in Japanese society or Japanese history during this era, because this is like the only notable like count of like someone with leprosy kind of rising above their caste. I think it's really cool. I think like it definitely like so we like talked about the carp trying to become that dragon and the jealousy and like ambition that was like fueled by it we talked about the corruption with like the centipedes and then just the divine dragon itself that people like try to uh obtain the powers of and then the divine child like at the base of all of that who was just protecting this and later she acts as like a um they call it her a cradle and like she so th there's one ending and i think and chat like can correct me if i'm wrong i think this is the purification ending or is it the true Wait, is it ending? the ending where kuro gets reborn inside of her body yes yeah which i feel like the the rebirth ending yeah um which is i think like we talked about this like it has something to do with um maybe was it buddhism um or buddhism, yeah and reincarnation yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um but the interesting thing about this story is like the dragon that didn't didn't originate in Japan, it was brought over from the West and like her wanting to take that back. Um, and like her just being this kind of like protector of the dragon entity in the universe. Uh, give me a second, I lost my thoughts here. No, please take your time. But like there's so many references to this because the divine uh, child like, you know, likes the per the persimmons. Like if you give it to her, then she really enjoys them. Um, and at some point in the game, it tells you to seek out these snakes that ha and like obtain their hearts, which are described as well, like persimmon that she would eat to basically like act as the cradle for when the time comes, um, Sekiro would help Kuro cut off the dragon heritage uh, in the land, like end his life. And then he would be reborn within her um, and they will take this like back to the West. Uh, like I I read a loose theory about this here, so I, like I try not to look up theories at all when it came to this. Like I wanted to just look up information and just like formulate my own ideas. But that the divine child has any connections to um, Inari Oka Okame, like the the 
I think it's the god or the kami, I think, that bestows oh, fertility. Okami, sorry, my bad. Okami, yeah. yeah For, uh, like fertility with like rice and whatnot. Or like you give rice to the the foxes. Um, if I'm not wrong, I, I may need to be corrected on this because I, I did lose like research about this, so I wasn't too sure. Um, no, no, you're correct. Um, anyone who wants to know who Okami is, Okami, the game. <laughs> That's Okami, Amaterasu. Inari Okami. Uh, just in general, like the Inari Okami uh, are helpful fox spirits, basically. Um, basically, like the, the god of foxes. And foxes are not viewed as mischievous spirits. They are considered um, helpful spirits in Japanese folk. So, yeah, so like, yeah. it's possible that like she was even like, that this process like maybe even brings fertility back to the land because they're taking away something that was like corrupting it potentially and like now she's acting as a cradle as taking it back to the west um because that's the ending there and i think like uh secure actually accompanies her on that journey he does yeah yeah um and it really strange things about her because like she was in an area um like she was at the top of the mountain uh which is the Sembu temple and around her were like infested monks and things like that but they didn't seem to enter her area or her domain and when you walk into her area, like there what they did wasn't they didn't seem to be like any indications of like Buddhist practices in there, but maybe more like Shinto beliefs. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I think she had like a shrine for like all the other children that had fallen to the experiments um of the monks themselves, right? And mm -hmm. when you first encounter her, you have to first pass this test of like see here or do no evil. Um Yeah, the well those monkeys the, are the, actually the full part monkeys. Of, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Those are actually part of uh buddhist belief though oh okay so, all right yeah. oh okay yeah. yeah the folding screen monkeys are um based on uh buddhist and confucius interpretations of the hear no evil see no evil mm -hmm. yeah um so it, it's like again like this like meld of um again buddhist and shinto beliefs sort of like culminating in this moment with the folding screen monkeys and like her being this again like vessel for like reincarnation and who she could potentially be in this story so i think it's interesting yeah so that that's where it gets a little bit weird for me because we started like seeing snakes in the game and they're not just any snakes right they're white snakes which i yeah which yeah. apparently are seen as, so like snakes are generally holy animals if i'm not wrong um mm -hmm. and they could be the cousins of dragons Mm -hmm. um and this white snake or the white snakes that we find in the game are associated with a goddess uh called benten for short and it's a japanese buddhist goddess who originated from the hindu goddess oh uh benzaiten yeah benzaiten benzaiten yeah. yeah yeah and um really interesting that like these snakes which could be like akin to to dragons at this point um we needed their hearts for the, the divine child to like consume to basically act as a cradle for the divine dragon itself because and it could be just like symbolism that they're the closest like cousin to the dragons themselves but I think this is where like it starts to really branch outwards. So it's not just like about the Japanese period period altogether and whatnot, but they're like different influences on the game as well from outside. Um, and I started like getting into things that are more uh, 
Hindu related rather than just like Japanese related, like not the fusion between like, let's say uh, Shinto and Buddhism, but just also outside references. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was quite an experience to like delve into these things. And there's like still so many questions that I had that I couldn't even like make connections of like just the wedding cavern and whatnot that I really would like to investigate. Like if it has to do anything with like any marriage rituals or the, the palanquin that was used. Um, I know that in Japan they transport deities between shrines. Um, yeah. Via, via the palanquins. Yeah. Yeah. But it just, I think it's just symbolism that like deities probably existed in these lands and much like before all the corruption existed. Yeah, it's sort of like, again, like the shift as like society kind of like away from like these myths or as like, it's like always with like these like fantasy settings or fantasy inspired settings because I don't really consider Sekiro like super fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, that these myths sort of begin to fade into the background as like society begins to progress, like as um, as Japan's heading towards its basically its reformation kind of thing like uh because there is no more strife and there is no more conflict and there are a lot of creatures in folklore kind of come from like again like the gashudokuro um the centipede all of that as they leave this warring era these things sort of drift into the background as no more of these like extreme negative emotions like uh death um continue to fuel this or the sort of uh corruption so do you do you think that they actually uh will not end it but they dramatically decreased after the Sengoku era yeah yeah you there was again it's uh most of these like demons were written about during like uh the Heian or Sengoku era yeah okay well it so. makes sense I mean considering like how much feud and strife there was in these p- times yeah so it, it only makes sense that people would find like different means to, to sort of explain things yeah yeah, yeah. So, like, speaking about all of this, what do you think Sekiro implies? Like, do you think it actually tries to tell any kind of story or just... It's just Miyazaki just having fun with things and, like, all the other games, he just kind of, like, takes it as he wishes and people try and, like, see into the details and make their own stories or... Um, one, I think he really, really likes Basilisk. <laughs> right. We talked about yeah. this because yeah. Miyazaki just seems to be like a big fan of like pop culture yeah. yeah, in general. So like <laughs> he draws inspirations from everywhere. Yeah. So if anyone isn't familiar with Basilisk or like Ninja Scroll, like check that out. The Ashina clan is a, a, in that a lot. Like Basil- even the seven spears of Ashina are in that. Yeah, which I read, yeah. which I read about, which is like apparently they were like these um, samurai that belonged to one of the warlords, if I'm not mistaken, and they were like very, very well trained. Yeah, um, I think this is definitely a criticism. At least this is how I interpret it. Mm-hmm. And I could be again completely wrong. I could be reading into things that like aren't there. Because who knows? He's oh, very vague with the story. He wants that's about. literally w- what we're meant to do here. Like we're just supposed to make the meaning of it the way we believe think fits. That's true. Yeah, you're you're right. Give me that. You're right. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, I, he would have just told the story. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a discussion of um, 
again, like what immortality means in terms of like lineage and pride regarding just like Japanese attitudes towards like, again, like this whole idea of like blood purity, I guess. And it's weird using that um, because that has a lot of like negative connotations with it. But again, like this idea of like your family persisting over the era and like what people had done during that era, like again, all of the murder um, and all of this war that had just kind of engulfed this era and like what that meant to like the Japanese people time is sort of almost an anti-war statement Mm -hmm. as well um especially as um talk about japanese recent politics i don't know if miyazaki cares about any of this shit um but recently the uh, ldp has tried to push for article 9 to get repealed article 9 is in the japanese constitution after world war ii that basically says japan cannot have a military Mm -hmm. so they we they cannot have an active military yeah, Repeating right after is, they after they tried to conquer so much yeah. around them. Yeah. Uh the LDP is is trying to um is trying to get that repealed so they can build their military. Of course, uh Korean people are very upset about this, Chinese people are very upset about this, and um even Japanese people are very much like, please, please do not repeal this. Like we, we don't want this. We do not we don't need to have this repealed. Um, and there is a lot going on right now in Japan about the LDP trying to basically reestablish Japan as a power and what that could mean and what conflict that must be really scary for a lot of people. Yeah, it's yeah, it's every day there is usually something about the LDP with this in relation to South Korea and South Korea being like no. The, um, China being like, nah, maybe don't, you know, that kind of thing, because um, just due to Japan's, like, history with Japanese imperialism and colonialism, this is very, very complicated subject. So I would like to think this is a very, like, anti-war message game, um, but that's just the impression that I got from it. Yeah, I, I, I kind of have, like, a similar sentiment about it as well. And, uh, like, the fact that it just, it also gives us choices, like, of considerations of the impact of, like, what we do, what endings that we take, that we can impact the land as a whole, like whether we want to be seen as a demon of like violence and murder and massacre, or whether we want to just yeah. completely end this for everyone and just return like everything back to what it was and remove all the corruption that existed in the land. I think I think it was cool. I mean, like again, Miyazaki games, they're always like free to interpretation. Everyone like takes them differently. People will just tell you not to see past what it is. But I think there definitely is a lot of basis for a story here. And exploring it was a lot of fun because I get mm-hmm. I got to found like so many cool um folklore and mythology that this is all based on and it, it really helped explain the bigger picture of like why all these key characters were doing what they were doing and why they were there um because the game never gives you that and you just have to formulate it yourself especially being someone that doesn't know too much about japan um like i I'm, i i wanted to just learn more but maybe i'll give this uh, like give chat a chance to maybe ask us any questions that maybe we can answer about like anything that we talked about um, or anything that could be relevant and if we see anything that we can address we definitely will um Mm -hmm. we talked about straw man yeah we did talk about straw man he's it's weird it's weird that they have the straw man in the way they do Mm -hmm. because that again like wait i think we talked about this before that this is literally associated with like cursing people in japan like that straw like that is like, I'm like, why is that there? Like, who are they cursing me the entire time? 
what's going on with that you know <laughs> yeah so like the one interpretation it could be the cursed uh straw dolls um and then the the other one that i thought of was the Sh shimanawa which is just the um the rope used for ritual purification in, in in shinto religion and it's meant to be it meant to separate like sacred and pure spaces from just the mundane um and it's just possible that he wanted to make it into a supernatural creature that took you from the physical yeah. mundane into the sacred areas of the fountainhead palace um and it's not more than that but like the sheer size of it is shocking right but like i think yeah. i showed in another one of the uh slides like just how big those ropes can get they're really really large um and they've they're really actually fascinating if you ever want to go to japan and see the actual shrines of like how much investment they did to make these massive um ropes uh just out of this material and and they're like i said just uh, separation between the sacred and the profane and you couldn't enter that area in the game without obtaining the mortal blade from the divine child who probably was the keeper of the dragon uh itself and so like that was the only way to get up there yeah i i like that that's 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 good that's, that's a good <laughs> that's a good theory i like that theory. i'm gonna go with that theory probably not relevant but the giant black roosters symbolize anything yeah. Uh, the, okay, so roosters in Japanese mythology, um, they represent sort of like, I guess, like this naivety among deities because the, the black rooster was actually used to lure like Amaterasu from her cave when she was sleeping to bring the sun. So Amaterasu is like, is an interesting story. And I think people might know this if like they watch Naruto or whatnot, but who is she exactly? Because I found some information about her, but I don't know too um, well. She's just like the the goddess of the sun. Yeah, yeah, and she's also a wolf. So, lots of wolf symbolism in this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, could Sekiro be considered, in a way, somewhat of a weird religious propaganda from a Japanese perspective, as in a rediscovery of spiritual values or something? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. No, I never. I again. Um, maybe because I'm Japanese, so I'm not super religious, but like. Um, it just kind of goes over like the basic tenets of like Buddhism and Shintoism, which kind of what we what we do like in our everyday, um, and it just kind of I mean with the Senpo Temple, it kind of illustrates the corruption within the religious institutions of Japan because in Japan you definitely do have a lot of corruption within um, Shinto temples and Buddhist temples. It's just nothing very discussed within like a like atmosphere, but there's definitely corruption and. Some bad shit going on. Yeah. So there apparently is also like a few questions uh, for, about dragons. Um, someone asked earlier, like the dragon coming, where, where did the dragon come from? Uh, and in in the item, it just said that the dragon came from the west. I think the holy infested chapter. Um, yeah. And asking if it's most likely China, and I know that you verified that. I've also yeah. heard like of just Korean theory, like just Korea, but yeah, most likely China. I think. Uh, you want to count the toes. The toes, right. Toes. The four the and the five toes is what yes, makes... the toes. I think this yeah. one had four toes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Then it's, it's uh, then it's the Chinese dragon. The Chinese dragon. All right. Yeah. yeah. It's going to the... be the feet. Hang on, let me check the feet. <laughs> yeah, the feet. <laughs> Visual <laughs> yeah. reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, another question in here was just, um, is there a connection uh, between Japanese mythology and dragons being defeated or weak to lightning? Because... Dark Souls and um, Sekiro both were taken down by lightning strikes. Dragon Any idea? Uh, sorry, so please send me pics. 
okay. Sorry, that's my community. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so dragons, depending on the dragon, is synonymous with different types of elements. That's what's important. Um, and again, dragon, uh, dra dragons, uh, Japanese dragons are very different from European for example. I do believe that the correlation between dragons and lightning is a Japanese thing, as again, like, uh, the dragon in this game has a correlation to lightning, which is very common. I think it's a, it's a silver dragon? I think so, yeah. 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 Silver dragon. And even in, like, Yakuza, for example, like, Ryuji Goda in, like, the original version of the game, he has a dragon tattoo back, and he hits you with lightning aspected attacks, and he's, like, a normal guy. Yeah, so right, again, like, like, where did that come from? Yeah. Oh, was... oh like that. that just makes me think about, like, Tomoe and her, like, um, how she taught... Uh the lightning basically the lightning attacks as well and they were like prominent by like a lot of the okami women that lived in the fountainhead palace mm -hmm. uh as well which also i could i could like i saw like specific small things um about the okami woman in the fountainhead palace itself but they're meant to be uh on a female warriors <laughs> maybe i'm not gonna be able to say the japanese for this they're meant to be female warriors that would fight along sam uh, alongside samurai men i know who you're talking about the in only times of need. yes that's it the only yeah. in times of need and war uh these women would fight along samurai uh, and the most memorable one in history was actually called tomoe gozen mm -hmm. and she was known for her bravery swordsmanship courage and valor and she was apparently her reputation was so high she was considered the first general of japan i don't know how true that is but it's something I did come across that. So, yeah, that's right, Spinny. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, just like a lot of these areas have like a lot of important characters as well that could just symbolize like uh, the divine dragon and just the area that you're in. Um, but yeah, lightning would be an interesting correlation there with like what you said with the different elements of the dragons. Yeah. Because, like, in um, regarding the elements, you have like, at least in China, uh, again, with the dragons, you have, like, your metal, your earth, your wood, fire. There are so many different elements this is regarding, like, dragons and whatnot. Then you also have, like, um, I forgot the name of the myth exactly, but it has to do with the the azure dragon, the phoenix, the black tortoise. Oh, no, the, 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 the vermilion phoenix, the black tortoise, and then there's, like, one other. And I'm forgetting it right now, but that's also, like, a myth that kind of, like, came over. And whatnot. So here's okay. something that I actually came across that was interesting, and like just for people that are into Dark Souls and like to think that like all Miyazaki's games are connected in one way or another. But when we talked about the carp and the dragons, and the with the carps that could not become dragons and like had the red eyes and stuff like that, could be references, by the way, as well to the primordial serpents in Dark Souls, like uh, Kaith and uh, oh man, Frampt, and they actually give you red eye items as well, if I'm not wrong, or they had red eyes themselves. So it's just. <laughs> just weird parallels that he puts into his stories and i know people probably are like trying to theorize like how these games connect and like whether they have an overarching story between them <laughs> i i just think it's again like dragons have human faces japanese dragons are really uh so it's just you know japanese dragons so that is that actually why the primordial serpents in there have like human faces and human teeth and, and like dark I, I think so because okay. uh dragons are Considered creatures of wisdom, so the primordial serpents could just be like an analog for Japanese dragons, and no one was like super aware of it until they're like, "Oh my god, the dragons have human faces!" And I'm like, "Yes, dragons have human faces. <laughs> they're really ugly." 
they they aren't beautiful no <laughs> no they're, they're not the japanese dragons aren't the most beautiful dragons if you're looking for beauty pageant dragons you want like european dragons so uh-huh yeah yeah so um, yeah I, I don't know if, if chat has any other questions but just wanted to like um, I them. know Hive had one actually. Okay, go for it. Uh, so, with the monks, would their quest for immortality be an antithetical to the tenets of Buddhism, as their immortality would be a material consideration as opposed to taking the Everest or Transcendence? I'm sorry. I yes, I think so. I think that is why uh, they are corrupt because their quest for immortality is based on their like um, attachment to like the mortal world or just like this plane of existence, I suppose, um, and that led to their corruption. But I, that's how I interpret it. I don't. No, no. That's yeah. a pretty cool interpretation. <laughs> I mean, that's all kind of like what we're doing here. Because like you said, Miyazaki never intended uh, for there to be any like major historical characters here or whatever. But we can probably draw parallels to a lot of them um, mm -hmm. and what they possibly mean. Yeah. Someone asked about how widespread were muskets and firearms in the um, Sengoku Jedi period. Um, so Western rep Western weaponry, uh, Western weaponry, sorry. I have a hard time speaking after. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm um, like that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, more or less came with like, um, Japan coming in contact with like Western civilization. So again, more prevalent during the, uh, uh, Sengoku era. Uh, you have records of Masamune being like super, super into like Western beliefs such as Christianity. Like Masamune was a Christian, by the way. Oh, I did not yeah, know he this. Was, he was a Christian. How yeah, was that he... regarded in those times? Um, well, it was okay for him, but for other people, it was sort of like, you're going to ship you off to an island, and you can all be Christian there, because uh, these Western beliefs are really fucking society. Um, yeah, to get, yeah, like Spidey said, a lot of folks have heard to try and get favorable trade details, and that kind of worked against them with, like, Japanese society as a whole being like oh maybe don't do that you know like uh, they basically push this out that's why Christianity isn't yeah yeah that makes it's sense guarded in Japan but yeah I think definitely uh, weaponry of those classes were widespread in this area and I think people really like the story and I didn't go into it today but just the whole um, Roberto instance and like the firecrackers um being part of uh, a merchant and his son and him coming coming to japan to search for immortality as well like he just mm -hmm. he came here for answers <laughs> yeah. and he brought this stuff with him as well and it just like it, it's the same in history like at some point there was like some trading ports open in japan and uh there was like one port and, and through that port they did bring this stuff to trade and that's how it like spread through the lens yeah and so, so like yeah yeah, more people getting attracted to this immortality solution. And interesting that they just decided to include that, but yeah. I think it's just, again, like, the idea of people who are looking for a way to extend their lives. Like, with Robert, it's... Uh, Roberto, sorry. It's uh, very much like, oh, like someone I love is dying. I heard that if I go eastward, then I'll be able to find something to give me immortality. And this is also something that uh, kind of came about during actually British colonialism and their contact with Japan and China, where they would literally excavate bones and say they were dragon bones and grind them up into tea and drink oh, wow. them. Yeah, so this is why the English are not super crazy well regarded in some of these countries. They were, yeah, yeah okay, around, unsavory. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, uh, and they said, mm, oh, they're dragon bones. They're good for you. They'll heal you, make you feel better. But they're really just eating, like, the bones of, like, deceased yeah. people. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. They, like, if we want to talk about, like, all eth- ethical standpoints here. Yeah. But I, I feel like that is, like, kind of, like, irrelevant to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, regarding, like, people coming eastward to, like, sort of find, like, the this idea of immortality to save someone that they care about. Um, and it also, I can, I guess, sort of spins this Orientalist perspective on, like, like I guess, like, Western people have this Orientalist perspective of, like, the East in general. Um, it being mysterious and captivating and holds secrets that are not, you know, found elsewhere. I think, I think that adds to the that conversation as well when you think. Someone comes west looking for immortality. Do they really understand what's going on, or do they really understand what that's about? You know. Yeah. So, just to start to like wrap this up and stuff like that. Yeah. How do you feel about um, J.R.R. Martin working together with Miyazaki on another From Software game? And this time it's giving Norse <laughs> mythology, so it's not. <laughs> we're we're entering a whole new realm. I'm gonna get a lot of unfollows for this but um (laughs) don't you dare chat (laughs) (laughs) um okay uh so i don't care um i'm not interested in another like extremely western white presentation of western fantasy when that already populates um you know, just general it's media. It's just very like, saturated you, yeah, markets. Yeah, like you, yeah. just, you can't fucking escape it. Like, um, So I'm not interested. I don't care about another story about Norse mythology. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell uh, you that it's definitely going to have some very... Like, okay, just I feel like just Miyazaki and Martin working together is going to produce some really weird combinations because Martin likes to make some really crazy characters with very uh, infused backgrounds Mm -hmm. that you kind of like feel a little bit worry of and so so does Miyazaki like he he likes to bring common themes like in his games and stuff like that so like put them together in a room to draft a story and it's gonna produce some really weird results and I think they're gonna have a lot of fun with it and it's gonna be very strange to interpret all together. I'm hoping it'll be really really politically heavy yeah, that would be cool. Um, because this... that's yeah, that's why I like most about the Game of Thrones was like, it was sort of this fringe era where like, you know, direwolves and dragons had existed. There was like record of it, but people moved on from that, and now they were sort of like infighting among each other as everything stabled out. But I I don't think it's gonna be that. I think it's I don't know. I yeah, I mean, I hope it actually does take a different spin because that would be interesting. Yeah. But like Jazz said that, you know, Miyazaki's more about the weird monster design while Martin has classic fantasy trips. I don't know if Martin's fantasy trips are going to really work in as like a Miyazaki game. I think that that's what Miyazaki's going to specialize in. But he, Martin probably would be able to write very good quests uh, for characters and things like that and just introducing them into the stories. Yeah. Um, um, uh, yeah, it's just, I personally, I'm not crazy interested in it like, <laughs> i mean i it just yeah. it's honestly i kind of like like Sekiro um in terms of like story because just because of all of this that i did today like just looking all of this up was kind of interesting um and like hearing your thoughts about it was really great and very informative oh thank you just yeah, your perspective think, yeah i think Sekiro was narratively my favorite of him, actually mm-hmm. um just because i i like the story more like i really do like dark but i'm not like super 
Like, um, the the more it progressed, the less interested I became, I guess. Um, but with Sekiro, I like it's more like clear narrative and like the themes it has and it presents. Like, so turning this back on you, uh, what what is your favorite? Miyazaki My f- game. Oh, yeah. okay. So th- this kind of like if we're just talking about just gameplay. Oh man, if we're talking about setting, probably a huge tie between Dark Souls One and Bloodborne. Bloodborne was just the first time I experienced that game. It just honestly, the music, the setting, just the Lovecraftian themes and everything just gave me bone chills. I was like, this is great. <laughs> I'm loving every second of this, and I couldn't wait to see more and more. And like Dark Souls just gave me like this impending doom that just just the light has gone out in the world and it's just desolate and dark but then i guess miyazaki always does desolation very well (laughs) yeah yeah but yeah bloodborne and dark souls one definitely um but yeah i think this was an interesting take about sekiro like i know that you said that even for people who are not aware and this is probably something that like you know people can investigate and look into a little bit more but there's a lot of visual usage in the games that you probably would not know symbolize something or another if you weren't like already educated in that stuff like we talked about earlier about how the, the, the sculptors outside of a sculptor yeah. the sculptors yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and like you said they were meant to like contain whatever was in there or like yeah so these these talismans are usually used to um contain something right so like the moment i left the sculptor's place i was like oh there's something bad like he's a demon like yeah (laughs) well see that must have been pretty obvious for you for me it was just like because i mean the carving of the buddha dolls of wrath and stuff like that was just weird as it is um but it seemed like he was kind of like punishing himself or just like obsessed with it and then now that you mentioned the talismans but yeah it's just it's like covered in talismans yeah something to keep him in something to like uh, contain all of that anger that he's trying to carve out. Like it, it's very interesting. I, I like that. It's good. <laughs> yeah. So let's wrap this up. Are you uh, are you excited for anything that's coming up in E three? Like just anything that you have your eyes on, or any like upcoming games this year? Um, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles HD remaster. So I can play that with friends. Like my favorite Final Fantasy game, other than Final Fantasy Tactics and 12. yeah. And you like Final Fantasy, that's for sure. I do. I, I like some Final Fantasy games. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know. Everyone's everyone's going to have a different opinion about which is their yeah, favorite yeah, yeah. Final Fantasy game. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I think that's literally it. That's like the only thing that you're excited for, for like up, upcoming games. <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah. You, you know which one I'm excited for and you've already played that one, so it's not fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe more games will come get announced that I'm going to be interested in. Um, and I'll lose my, my McFrickin' mind over. Uh, but yeah, what games are you looking forward to? Uh, I'm probably going to forget everything right now, but Astral Chain? I like Platinum games. Oh, yeah, Astral Chain. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, I want to see what Code Vein is about. I didn't get to play it myself, so I want to see if that could be fun in terms of like gameplay and whatnot. And de- yeah, Death Stranding. I'm sorry. I have to. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I want to see. Yeah, yeah I, I want to see what that one's about. Like, even if it just doesn't end up being like a huge gameplay game or anything like that, I just want to experience the cinematic visual telling that Kojima probably has lined up for us with that. So, like, even if it's not a very heavy game or anything, I think it'd be like a very weird experience and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, would you like to plug yourself talk about like things that you're doing like um in any oh, way yeah. 
like no it's it's yeah because yeah. <laughs> i think honestly like you guys really should check out kazuma he has a lot to offer like just in terms of opinions and he's just a lot of fun um you should check out his channel he does stream but he has a very big presence on twitter as well and you could tell us a little bit more about what you do and whatever you, whatever you feel passionate about uh yeah so um on twitch i kind of stream darkest out every once in a while and then we trek memes and japanese colonialism uh that's i wish that was a joke but it's not yeah shark memes memes, the the channel has embraced it in a very weird way (laughs) and uh red dead redemption 2 memes um yeah uh uh, right now i'm currently playing haunting ground and going like old games that i play during ps2 like uh, era like the golden age of horror so haunting ground is what i'm currently playing that was very cool to watch i didn't even know about that one it's it's you need to try that dog dog petting simulator yeah, like I, I want to see you play that actually. Okay. Yeah, so, stop coming to my streams. Uh, you have to play it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it on my list. Um, um, I again, like a lot of what I discuss is Japanese society. Um, yeah, see the emotes there, the cowboy time emote. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, to the, follow- oh, thank you so much for the follows. Um, yeah, I talk about Japanese colonialism, colonialism, Japanese politics. Um, a lot of um Japanese imperialism and modern media games i play a a lot of it kind of all comes back to that and me talking about things that i think about i think more people should know about i also talk about shrek we do we talked about how shrek and the metal gear series share the same composer and metal gear solid 5 was Mm -hmm. codenamed project ogre so it's just it's that you know that's what we do we're just having a good time talking about politics sometimes about interracial issues that kind of stuff um yeah feel free to give me a follow if you're interested in that kind of thing but thank you so much uh Thank you so much, Lynn, for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, it was actually really wonderful. I had a great time, and I'm sure a lot of people in here appreciated you as well. Thank you so much, uh, Kazuma. It was actually, honestly, a pleasure, and I would love to have you maybe another day to do this again. And uh, I think you guys should all give him a follow. He's fantastic. And if you guys enjoyed this podcast at all, Beneath the Ashes, it's just meant to be like for those games that we just have continuing questions for um and we never really get answered i hope maybe we can do more of them in the future so thank you guys so much for tuning in